Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St Albans Five Docs Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Good morning everyone, my name's Dave Bingley, I'm the site pastor if I haven't met you already. This morning is our final week in this summer series, and we've called this series Questions Jesus Asks. So not questions Jesus asked in the past tense, but in the present tense. And I've said this a few times. We've done that intentionally. Jesus continues to ask these questions to us by his Holy Spirit. These questions are for us. And so this morning, the question that we're going to be looking at is the most foundational question for Christian discipleship. The most foundational question for Christian discipleship. And it wasn't just for Peter, it's for us to Do you love me? As we have the last few weeks, we're going to have a moment of reflections just after or towards the end of this sermon. It's a time just for you to, like I said last week, to share any maybe unpolished thoughts or reflections you have on on what I've said and from the passage. It's a really intriguing passage this morning, and it might result in some interesting insights or thoughts or observations from you. So we'll have a moment of that just before the end of the sermon. If you like sci-fi movies, you might have heard of the 1979 movie, The Stalker. It was directed by the Russian filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. And the movie, The Stalker, has an eerie, apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic dystopian feel similar to Cormac McCarthy's The Road. The plot follows three men on a journey. So there's the professor, there's the writer, and there's the stalker. And the stalker serves as their guide. And as we begin, the destination where they're going is shrouded in mystery and intrigue. But eventually we learn that the stalker is leading these men to the zone. And more specifically to the room, the room in the zone. The room is what has led the writer and the professor to follow the stalker up until this point. It's the room that's drawn them along the entire movie. The stalker says about the room, this is the most important in your, uh, moment in your life. For in the room, you will achieve your heart's desire. In the room, their dreams will come true. In the room, they get exactly what they want. Which is why when they reach the room, the professor and the writer get cold feet. It dawns on them. What if I don't know what I want? The room reveals all. What you get is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply wish for. And it begins to creep up on the professor and the writer. What if they don't want what they think? What if the desires that they're conscious of, the ones they've chosen, as it were, are not the innermost longings the deepest wishes that they have? What if, in some sense, their deepest longings are humming under their consciousness, unawares? Now, if I was to ask you, a Christian, to tell me what you really want, what you most long for, you ultimately love, of course, you know the right answer. You know that what you ought to say is God. And what you state or what you say to the answer what do you really want, could be entirely genuine and authentic, a true expression of your intellectual conviction. But what you want 
often hums underneath the surface. Would you step into the room? Would you step into the room? Are you confident that what you think you love aligns with your innermost longings? This is one of the lessons of the zone. Sometimes a person doesn't want what they think they want. And in chapter 21, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? It's one of the last questions that Jesus asks in the gospel. And the very first question that Jesus asks in the gospel to his very first disciples is, the very first question Jesus asks is, what do you want? You can't get a more basic discipleship question than this because our wants, our desires, our longings, our loves are at the very core of who we are. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect but wants to form our loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into our minds. He is after nothing less than our wants, our loves and our longings. To follow Jesus is to become a student of the rabbi who teaches us how to love. To follow Jesus is to become a student of the rabbi who teaches us how to love. So this morning, first point, we might not love what we think. And second, setting our love on Jesus. So we might not love what we think. To understand the verses that were read in the Gospel of John, we need to wind back the story just a little. As the Gospel accounts unfold, we get to know Peter, the, um, the disciple Peter. He's a bold, he's a brash, and sometimes a pretentious disciple. And as we see in chapter 26 of the Gospel of Matthew, he might not love what he thinks he loves. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and just after they celebrated the Lord's Supper, Peter is in fine form. Peter says this. He says this to Jesus. Even if everyone else deserts you, I never will desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Or you'll deny that you know me three times. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. That's in Matthew chapter 26. And then fast-forwarding the story just a little bit, in John chapter 18, Peter and John, the author of the gospel, they were in the high priest's courtyard. They were standing with some guards around some burning coals, because it was cold in the courtyard. And then first, the young servant girl asks Peter, you're not one of the man's disciples, are you? No, Peter said, I'm not. And then in in John chapter 18, the the scene suddenly shifts to Jesus, who's likewise being asked questions, but not by a a servant girl, but the most powerful girl in the uh, man in the region. And the difference is that Jesus replies with honesty and fearlessness, and even a little pointedly. So that suddenly shifts to Jesus, and then in John chapter 18, it suddenly goes back to Peter. Meanwhile, as Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it. No, I'm not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately the rooster crowed. Now just say Peter was asked the question that Jesus asked him in chapter 21, do you love me? Just say Peter was asked that question prior to this incident, prior to him denying Jesus, of course Peter would have said, I love you. Yes, of course, more than anyone else. Peter knew the right answer. I imagine he would have been genuine in his answer, authentic. It would have been a true expression of his intellectual conviction. But the thing is, as Tarkovsky knows and brings out in the film, 
We're not always conscious of our innermost longings. They hum beneath the hood, beneath our awareness. And so when Peter steps into the priest's courtyard, what's happening is that he's, it's nearly as if he's stepping into the room. The priest's courtyard is the moment when his innermost loves will be tested and revealed for what they are. And this scenario, this scenario of testing, isn't foreign to the Bible writers. Because we are what we love, and because God is after nothing but our love, and because we can so easily not love what we think, God tests people to find out if they really do love him. So a few chapters after the Deuteronomy reading in chapter 13, it says... The Lord your God is testing you to see if you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. Faith and love are very closely connected. Your faith is being tested as fire is tested and purified by gold, though your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. The point I'm making is... God tests his people to find out if they do love him. So I used to live close to the Georges River down south, and just up the road was my fishing spot. And I remember the first time I went fishing during a neap tide. Now, a neap tide is when the tide is at its very lowest. I could see things I'd never seen before. I could see a sandbank from the Oatley side, pretty much going all the way to the Como side. I could have walked across um, the river to Como if I wanted. I could see rocks and oysters and the homes of crabs and yabbies I'd never seen before. When we go through times of tiredness or pressure or busyness or outright hostility or crisis, it's like a low tide that can expose what's underneath. It lays bare the foundation. When times are easy and life is calm and settled, our loves hum under the hood without our awareness. But when the tide turns, they're uncovered and we're given a glimpse. And although these moments are painful and maybe even distressing, knowing what you really want, what you really love, is about as an important an insight about yourself that you'll ever get. So for Peter, underneath his awareness, what he really wanted in that moment in in the priest's courtyard, what he really wanted was his, his life, I suppose. And to put that into other categories, maybe it was his safety he was after, he loved most, or his approval or reputation. It's something like that. It's hard for us to tell, but if Peter did reflect on that moment, he would have been able to specify with more accuracy than we can what it was for him, what he loved most, because it wasn't Jesus. And so we might love what we think. Now, second, setting our love on Jesus. Our focus has been on Peter, and at this point he's a man who's doomed to live a completely haunted life. He's broken, he's denied the one he swore he wouldn't, he's chickened out, his career was to be a leader in this great movement, and now he's the last person anyone will follow. His career is ruined, his self-understanding is ruined, he's a haunted man, he's been wounded. 
Who's going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? All the king's horses and all the king's men? Jesus, in this passage, does it. He comes and he shows us that he is, from last week, the great physician, the doctor of the soul. So chapter 21 is nearly like the postscript to the gospel. In chapter 20, so the chapter before, we read of Jesus' resurrection. We read of his appearing to the disciples in the upper room and he is commissioning them to to go and act in Jesus' name. And then in chapter 20, the author rounds off the gospel account with the purpose of the entire gospel. So verse 30 of chapter 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you may, through believing, have life in his name. So at this point, at the end of chapter 20, he could have easily signed off. The account of Jesus, the life, the death, and the resurrection is complete. It's the end. That's chapter 20. But yet, there's one character whose story remains unresolved. And so we get one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible, chapter 21. I hope you see how much a treasure it is as we go through it. The chapter begins with Peter. As I said, he's broken, he's confused, he's unsure of his future. And he says to the other disciples, let's go fishing. It's what he knows best. Maybe he's trying to put the Jesus phase of his life behind him. Or maybe he just needs some space to let things settle in his mind. So they're out fishing and they've caught nothing. Verse 4. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach. But the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast a net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. So this nearly exact episode has happened to Peter and the disciples before. In Luke chapter 5, they didn't catch anything all night. And then they see Jesus and Jesus says, put the net on the other side and they catch a whole lot of fish. And in Luke chapter 5, Peter responds to Jesus like this. Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. But let's continue in this chapter from verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the lake and ran to Jesus. He runs to Jesus. Something has changed for Peter. Peter now knows Jesus. Jesus wasn't somebody to fear, even though Peter was indeed a very sinful man. Jesus, uh, Peter had come to know Jesus as a friend. And more than a friend, and and maybe, thought Peter, here's a chance to put things right. And so Peter reaches the shore, and there's the sound of burning coals. Coals was a feature in John chapter 18. And the smell of fish cooking on the fire, and the words of Jesus that cuts through any potential tension. Can you bring me some of the fish you caught? And there aren't many better contexts for healing conversations than around a fire. And that's exactly what we have here. The scene is set, the dialogue which follows, the dialogue that we read, so verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. 
He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So in some ways, the scene is the same as a few nights prior. There's burning coals and there's a threefold repetition. So in some ways, it's the same, but really it's totally different. The cold, dark scene of John chapter 18 was all about Peter's love falling short. And if anything in the gospel, Peter represents our, our best efforts to love. He's the most determined one. If anything, if he falls short, we're all going to fall short. But this scene around the fire is all about not Peter's fail, failure to love, but it's all about Jesus' unwavering, restorative, never-failing love. That's what this chapter is about, this dialogue. So Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? The reason I think Jesus says more than these is because it's a reference back to when Peter boasted, even if all the other disciples deny you, I never will. I love you the most. Or so he thought. So Jesus asked, do you love me more than these? These are the disciples. And then a second time, do you love me? And then a third time, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he asked him a third time. Peter began to feel that this wasn't an easy conversation. Jesus is returning Peter to his threefold denial, his threefold failure to love. It's nearly as if Jesus is twisting the knife a little bit in this conversation. But it's not the knife of a surgeon, as I've said before, it's the knife of uh, sorry, it's it's not the knife of a thief. It's the knife of a surgeon. So every time Jesus says, I want you to see your brokenness, your failure to love, Jesus drives down into the heart of Peter's heart the most incredible love and affirmation. Jesus says, by asking him the questions, you failed me. Peter says, I know. And Jesus says, okay, now take charge. You're the leader, take over. It's as if Jesus is carefully unraveling the shame from Peter and replacing it with a new mission, a new purpose. Now, there are a number of disciples, and Peter is the most broken at this point in time. He's the one who was the most out of touch with who he was. His failure was the greatest. Yet Jesus says, of all the disciples, because your failure is the greatest, you're going to become the rock. You're going to become the leader. So I hope you see what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, plunge your failure into my love and I'll make you greater than you were before. A greater failure plunged into my love makes you a greater leader, a greater shepherd. The more the failure, the greater the cracks, the more Jesus' love shines through. Or to put it another way, it's not so much about our love for Jesus, Jesus infers. It's about Jesus' love for us. It's not so much our love for Jesus, but it's about Jesus' love for us. We're going to tie things off in just a second. But are there any thoughts or reflections? coming off what I've said or what the passage says. It's an intriguing passage and you might have other thoughts. You might have an interpretation that goes slightly different to mine, but I'd love to hear it. Yeah, for sure. I think part of the, um, the, 
the, the most important things to happen as we grow as Christians is for convictions we have in our head to sink into our hearts so that the love of Jesus we sing about and talk about moves from here to, to here. And we're not told whether Jesus, uh, Peter would, would fail again if he was put in that same situation after the first time. But I think it'd be fair to say that the love of Jesus has sunk deeper than it was prior. And so maybe he, he won't next time deny him. We're not sure. But that's, I think he would have known what it was to love Jesus a little bit more because he would have felt the love of Jesus himself after this dialogue. This moment is at least a recommissioning. Uh, it, it's, it's Jesus commissioning him to be the leader of the church in the book of Acts and, and, and afterwards it's at least a recommission. Yeah, Peter himself was, was crucified like Jesus, but upside down because he didn't want to die the same way Jesus did. Mm. On that light note, <laughs> we're going to close things off. So let's return to the question, do you love me? There are no two ways about it. God wants our hearts. God wants our first and primary love. In the room where you get exactly what you want, God desires a people who, if they entered, would find that in the room was God in all of his majesty and glory. But here's the key. The only way for us to ever love Jesus the most is if we see ourselves in Peter's situation, if we have a sense of how he loves us, despite our failures to love him. In fact, the greater the failure, the greater the chances that our heart will ignite in love for him. This is so key. So we can never forget this chapter. I want you, just for a moment, to place yourself here, okay? Chapter 21, we can never forget this chapter. It's a story, so place yourself, place yourself here. It's a story of a broken man who failed in a way he never thought he would. And there on the shore is the one he failed. Not bitter or angry, not waiting for Peter to grovel at his feet, but with a barbecue breakfast ready and the fire crackling, ready to himself heal and restore the one who denied him. Jesus looks at Peter, as you can imagine, through the flames. And even though Peter would have likely struggled to, to maintain the eye contact, it would be obvious in Jesus' eyes that he is somebody who loves me, despite my failure. So chapter 21 is a picture of a love so steady, so beautiful, it might even melt our own hearts. Let's pray. God of steadfast love, pour your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that we will more and more love you with our whole hearts, minds, and strength. Amen.